whoever subtitled this book, faithful, flawed, and fruitful, said more than he knew. For he was not only describing the saints in this book, he was also describing the book itself. Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today's episode is part two of my review on John Piper's 27 Servants of Sovereign Joy, Faithful, Flawed and Fruitful. 1,024 pages published by Crossway in September 2022. This book is available in Amazon Kindle for $34.99 and in Logos for $35.99. But as I revealed in the last episode, you can get this Piper book for free in DesiringGod.com. That's DesiringGod.com. I feel a bit like I'm revealing a secret that I'm not supposed to uh, reveal. Uh, But uh, Piper's books are indeed free. Uh, and they are legally free. Uh, let's go to a short recap on the last episode. 27 Servants of Sovereign Joy is a collection of nine books. Each book consists of three biographies. In the last episode, I picked one man that best represents the theme of the entire book, and that man was Augustine. So if you are wondering whether you will like this book or not, you can listen to the last episode or... Even better, you can read the 26 pages that make up Piper's biography on Augustine. Yes, that's only 26 pages. That's basically the number of pages, more or less, that he dedicates to each person in this collection. So it's a short and easy read in that sense. I also pointed out that each book has a theme, and that theme is conveyed from a reform base, from a reform point of view. Before these uh, biographies were written books, they were first messages spoken in the Bethlehem Conference for Pastors, a conclave of Calvinists. (laughs) And uh, Piper tells these stories to teach and encourage those pastors first. And then later on, uh, these books were written so that all Christians can learn how to live in joy, in endurance, in contending for the faith, in suffering, and more. And the more is what we will see today. In part one, I looked at books one to five. Now, I will look at books six to nine. I thought that I would have an easy time doing part two. I expected the remaining books to be more of the same. The same well-written, God-magnifying, Christ-exalting, Holy Spirit-edifying reading that I enjoyed. I looked ahead to the final book and I saw um, we have Jonathan Edwards, uh, who is uh, John Piper's hero. Uh, We have Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is my hero. And we also have Bill Piper, who is uh, John Piper's father. So I expected a climatic conclusion to this series. Well, those were my expectations, and after finishing the book, I am disappointed to say, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. You must listen to the end. We have here the last four books in this collection. Book 6 is titled, Seeing Beauty and Saying Beautifully. 
We have here the lives of George Herbert, George Whitfield, and C.S. Lewis. Book 7 is A Camaraderie of Confidence with Charles Spurgeon, George Mueller, and Hudson Taylor. Book 8 is The Power of Doctrinal Holiness with Andrew Fuller, Robert Murray McCain, and J.C. Wow. And last but not least, we have Book 9, which is titled The Passionate Pursuit of Revival and Christ's Exalting Joy with Jonathan Edwards, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and Bill Piper. Book 6 is the most Piper-like book. Piper did not launch a reformation like Martin Luther, uh, who you can read about in Book 1. Nor did Piper suffer in the Indian wilderness like David Brainerd, which you can read in Book 2. Nor did he contend against the world like Athanasius in Book 4. Now, Book 6 is a special book because here we have George Herbert, the poet, and Piper is a poet. We have George Whitfield, the dramatic preacher. Piper is a dramatic preacher. And we also have C.S. Lewis, who makes Christianity simple and beautiful. And Piper makes the faith simple and beautiful. Let's focus and let's just zoom in on one man, George Whitfield, the preacher of the Great Awakening. In an age without cars or planes, thousands upon thousands came from far away to listen to him. Thousands upon thousands stood in the field, under the night sky, under the rain, just to hear him. Now, there were many preachers in that time, so why does George Whitfield stand out? Because he stands out because he saw beauty and expressed it in a beautiful manner that no other preacher could, maybe even ever since. Piper quotes Benjamin Franklin who said, I quote, Every accent, every emphasis, every modulation of voice was so perfectly well-tuned and well-placed that without being interested in the subject, one could not help being pleased with the discourse. A pleasure of much the same kind with that received from an excellent piece of music. End quote. Now, strong praise from a non-believer and something that all podcasters aspire towards. <laughs> but maybe it is also damning praise. Piper quotes a critic, Harry Stout, who claims that Whitfield was plying a religious trade, pursuing religious fame, craving respect and power, driven by egotism and putting on performances and integrating religious discourse into the emerging language of consumption. Piper writes, I do not doubt that Whitfield was, quote-unquote, acting as he preached. Hmm. If Piper himself concedes that George Whitfield was acting on stage, is it wise for any of us to look up to an actor, no matter how gifted or devout this showman may be? Then Piper asks the question that we should ask, which is, why was Whitfield acting? 
So Piper quotes Whitfield. So Whitfield here is speaking. I quote, I'll tell you a story. The Archbishop of Canterbury in the year 1675 was acquainted with Mr. Butterton, the actor. One day, the Archbishop said to Butterton, Pray inform me, Mr. Butterton, what is the reason you actors on stage can affect your congregations with speaking of things imaginary, as if they were real, while we in church speak of things real, which our congregations only receive as if they were imaginary? Why, my lord, said Caesar Butterton, the reason is very plain. We actors on stage speak of things imaginary, as if they were real, and you in the pulpit speak of things real, as if they were imaginary. End quote. Now, soon after that, Piper concludes, I quote, This means that there are three ways to speak. First, you can speak of an unreal, imaginary world as if it were real. That is what actors do in a play. Second, you can speak about a real world as if it were unreal. That is what half-hearted pastors do when they preach about glorious things in a way that implies they are not as terrifying or as wonderful as they are. And third, you can speak about a real spiritual world as if it were wonderfully, terrifyingly magnificent magnificently real because it is end quote so piper here takes the essence of george whitfield the great preacher and asks what does the man see he sees christ he sees glory he sees wonderful terrifying magnificent things and and piper then explains why does he express it in the way he does so something for all of us to learn. And then he applies the same sort of questions to the next person, C.S. Lewis. Now, in previous biographies, Piper showed us how the Reformed doctrine is the ground from which Bunyan, Macon, Peyton would tower mightily and how they would shine for Christ from this uh, doctrine which they believe. But you see, in this list of 27, not all of the men are reformed. For example, Piper makes a footnote that in footnote uh, referring and citing one of William Weberforce's letters, who writes, I myself am no Calvinist. Yet at the same time, in the same page, Piper notes that many of Wilberforce's closest and admired friends were Calvinists, and when he when Wilberforce looked for a church to attend, he often chose to sit under Calvinists. So uh, what this means is that for all these men in the Piper's book, you will always get some sort of a reform perspective, whether or not these men were reformed. And C.S. Lewis is not. Piper has a subheading that reads, Lewis's Defective Views, which includes views on inerrancy of Scripture, salvation without Christ, and atonement. Now, these are fundamental doctrines that, that make up Piper's theology. So how is it that Piper can admire this man yet completely disagree with him in the most important uh, doctrines? Piper writes, I quote, 
Lois rarely shows his exegesis. He doesn't deal explicitly with many texts. He is not an expositor. His value is not in his biblical exegesis. It lies elsewhere. End quote. And Piper shows us that it lies in uh, Lewis as a romantic, rationalist, master, likener, and evangelist. Now, I'm sure you know what's a romantic, rationalist, and evangelist. But what is this thing called a master likener? And uh, let me just give you an example from, uh, from uh, one of uh, Lewis's uh, writing. He famously wrote this, and it should explain what a likener is. I quote, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like, okay, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. End quote. Now, I'm not sure whether Piper was the first one to see Lewis as a romantic rationalist, master likener, and evangelist, but those categories uh, fit him very well. And I've taken to think of Piper on those terms as well. Now, in doing so, in doing what he did in this biography, Piper shows us how to distinguish the man from his doctrine so that we can embrace one without the other. So that is one of the example values that you can get from reading this book. Now, for the second half of this episode, I want to present two criticisms against the book. The first criticism is all too prevalent now, especially in today's race and gender-sensitive culture, and it's a criticism that I refute, I reject, I completely disagree you know, for anyone who thinks so. The second criticism comes from my finishing the book, and I want to express my disappointment, my personal disappointment, because this should have been a much stronger book. So let's start with the first criticism. When I opened the book, I went through the list, and without meaning to, I noted that in this list of 27 people, they are all men. Not only that, they were all white men. Now, without any malice or hidden agenda, without being in one political party or denomination or having one ideology or theology, one could innocently ask, okay, just very innocently ask, Pastor John, are there really no women or non-white people in all history, in all the world, who could have made your list? Nowhere in this book does Piper directly answer that question, but I think I can draw out a reasonable response based on what he wrote here and the complementarian view I know he holds. The complementarian view is that God created men and women to hold different and complementary roles. For example, and this is an important example, the role of the pastor is only for men and not for women. Now, this is not the podcast or the 
not even the book to get into this debate. My purpose in uh, going into this is not to persuade you of the complementarian view, but my purpose is to show how that view, how Piper's view, permeates the book and helps explain why the list is made up of men. Consider the genesis of this book. These were not messages to married couples or to the family or to the church in general. These, were, um, these messages were written to pastors and, and note that only men can be pastors. So his examples are men. Does this mean that women have nothing to offer to pastors? No, 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 no. Piper never says that. And if you would think so, you would be making an argument from silence because he never, never said that. He brings out men as examples because he believes men need to see men being manly. To see men being manly? That sounds so wrong in today's uh, culture, in today's uh, world. Um, and the answer is yes. And there is a chapter in Book 8 that proves my point. The title of that chapter is The Frank and Manly Mr. Rao, The Value of a Masculine Ministry. Mm. As a part of the lessons from the life of J.C. Rao, uh, Piper gives us in this biography eight traits of a masculine ministry. So I'll just give you an example of the first one. I quote, A masculine ministry believes that it is more fitting that men take the lash of criticism that must come in a public ministry than to unnecessarily expose women to this assault. End quote. Piper goes on to explain how this masculine ministry is seen in the life and ministry of J.C. Rao. You will wonder, uh, automatically wonder, um, what about women? And for this first trait, as well as all the other traits, uh, Piper ends by addressing this question. I quote, Courage in the midst of combat, especially harsh and painful combat, whether with arms or with words, is not something a woman can't exercise, nor even something she shouldn't exercise under certain circumstances. The reason we call such courage manly is not that a woman can't show it, but that we feel a sense of fitness and joy when a man steps up to risk his life or his career with courage. But we should feel awkward if a woman is thrust into that role on behalf of men. She may be able to do it, and we may admire her for doing it, if necessary, but we wish the men were numerous enough and strong enough and courageous enough that the women could rejoice in the men rather than take their place. End quote. And so he does this for all of the eight traits. First, he explains what he means by masculine ministry. Then he shows how J.C. Rao uh, demonstrated and uh, he follows that by uh, talking about women about how this masculine ministry works with respect to women, with the expectation always that both men and women welcome this vision of a masculine ministry. You may agree 
or not agree with Piper's complementarian view. But all I'm saying here <laughs> is that uh, Piper is consistent within the confines of this worldview. And that explains why they are all men. Now let's attempt to justify them being all white. Let me ask you this question. Can you name me 10 Christians who have impacted your faith, who have helped you grow in maturity in Christ? And if you can do so, praise God for surrounding you with 10 witnesses for Christ. The question, the follow-up question I want to ask is, should you be expected to pick names to fulfill a diversity quota? And if you think you should, how does that diversity quota even look like? Does Augustine fulfill that quota? He is, after all, from modern-day Algeria, so that makes him an African. Can we consider Athanasius? Because he was from Alexandria, and that was in Egypt. And uh, can we include Hudson Taylor? He, is, uh, he was a British man who gave up his life for the Chinese. Does Adoniram Judson count? He was an American who gave his life for the Burmese. Because in the time of Hudson Taylor and also Adoniram Judson, it would be, you would be hard-pressed to find a Chinese Christian or a Burmese Christian who has done as much as these men did for the kingdom of God. So can we consider them as representative, considering that they gave their life and died in service of, of uh, these people? Now, there is a place for diversity because God himself created a diverse human race. Now, even though I am not white, I'm not a white man, I find that I have a deep, unexplainable, supernatural connection to these 27 men. Not because of the skin color, not because of the times, or because of the part of the world, or gender, but simply because they are Christians. I saw a meme the other day, where on the top of the picture, you have a group of girls agonizing over the right skin tone for Ariel in The Little Mermaid. Then at the bottom, there is a picture of boys of all colors. You have Chinese, um, uh, black, brown, white, yellow, whatever it is. So you have boys, boys of all colors, and they're all looking at the giant robot, and they're all thinking, I am Optimus Prime. <laughs> In the same way, all of us, men and women, from wherever we are, should look at these giants of faith, these 27 men that Piper is introducing to us, and we should all say, I am a Christian. So that's my rejection to what I consider as an invalid and unfair criticism against, a, against Piper's list of heroes. Now, what I say next is my own criticism against what should be a stronger book. After completing the book, my conclusion is, less is more. The book should have ended with 21 servants instead of 27. And if you had listened to part 1 of this book review, you will remember that it was 21, but it was expanded to 27 with the inclusion of books 8 and 9. In books 1 to 7, the theme works. For example, in Book 5, you have Tyndale, Patton, and Judson, and they all suffered for Christ. 
it's very easy to see how they all come together and what marks their life. They really, really suffered. In book 6, you have Herbert, Whitfield and Louise. And they saw beauty and gloried in it. And it was clear, once Piper explained how George Herbert, George Whitfield and C.S. Lewis come together, it was obvious. These themes jump at you. You would naturally group these men together. And if not, Piper would explain it in such a way that you would agree with him. The problem I have with books 8 and 9 is simply the themes don't work. Or... Piper did not explain it clearly enough. Book 9 is titled The Passionate Pursuit of Revival and Christ-Exalting Joy. We have Jonathan Edwards, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and Bill Piper. Now, in order to make the theme work, I find that Piper has distorted the life and ministry of Lloyd-Jones. It would be like describing the life and ministry of John MacArthur by his book Strange Fire which describes a cessationist position. And I won't go into that. And it would, be, it would not be wrong because he does hold that position. But if you're going to describe the life and ministry of John MacArthur, shouldn't we describe his crowning achievement of expounding through the New Testament book by book, verse by verse, and completing this task in a good 42 years? Or, to give a better example, uh, it would be like describing the life and ministry of John Piper by saying he objected to women being pastors. That's not wrong. <laughs> but imagine if you read a 40-page biography on Piper and the emphasis and the concluding thought was that John Piper doesn't like women pastors. Is that the correct emphasis. What about Christian hedonism? Or, you know, desiring God? So I'm not saying that what Piper wrote on Martin Lloyd-Jones is wrong. I am not saying that what he wrote was wrong. It is possibly a good analysis of Lloyd-Jones, uh, his position on revival, Pentecostalism, and his practice. in Because Piper analyzed um, the practice of, of this uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones based on what he preached and what he actually did. In fact, the section that ends the chapter is titled, Did He Practice What He Preached? And I would say that that is not how the story of any of these 27 men should end. All of these men, including Martin Lloyd-Jones, deserves a better conclusion, and they deserve to be able to describe their life work and not just be uh, uh, one part of their doctrine or one part of their, of their ministry being emphasized simply to fit a theme. And that leads me to my second part of my criticism. And that is, where is the conclusion? In books 1 to 7, we have a concluding chapter after the three biographies. We have a separate chapter okay, that ends the book. And that separate chapter helps explain how those three people come together. In book one, okay, if we go back to book one, we have a chapter on Augustine. And that is when we zoom into the life of Augustine. Then, after finishing it, we switch targets and zoom into Martin Luther. Then, lastly, we zoom into John Calvin. The most important part of, of the book 
is when Piper zooms out, he puts on a wide-angle lens, he zooms out and tells us how Augustine, Martin Luther and John Calvin, how they all connect to the theme of the legacy of sovereign joy. So even if you were introduced in the beginning and then you read the stories, you're not sure how they all fit together, the conclusion just clarifies and, and allows us to just learn the lessons of these men. Piper puts these men in the conclusion, he puts these men side by side, standing shoulder to shoulder, so that we can see their similarities and differences with respect to, say, sovereign joy, or to show the hidden smile of God, or to describe the roots of endurance. I don't think that I am exaggerating when I say that the conclusion, that the conclusion, concluding chapter is what sets this series of biographies apart from all the other biographies that you can get out there. So when I get to books 8 and 9, that concluding chapter is missing and I am left guessing. Because the revival connection between Martin Lloyd-Jones, Jonathan Edwards, and Bill Piper is very tenuous. It's not very strong at, uh, in my mind. Do you know who would be a better replacement for Lloyd-Jones? Who would be a better substitute for revival? It would be Billy Graham. Now, from what I have heard and what I have read elsewhere, uh, Bill Piper and his son, John Piper, have a stronger personal connection to Billy Graham than they do with Martin Lloyd-Jones. And that personal connection would probably work much better with the ending for the entire series that Piper gives us. Now, if I ended this book review with that note, you would think, you would assume that I don't find this book very good and you would be wrong and that is why conclusions are very important so in conclusion 27 servants of sovereign joy is a splendid book these are all men you want to know they will encourage you they will teach you many things these short biographies will show you the wide spectrum of what it means to be faithful some of these men came to faith early some late for some, their faith bloomed in a short life, and some lived a good, long life of service. We see here flawed saints. We have depression, loneliness, sexual addiction, pride. It's all here. Whatever trials and temptations you face, you will find solace in these companions. And these companions were fruitful now, some managed to see their fruits while they lived, and that is thanks to God's mercy. But some of these men never saw any fruit. But they would wonder with amazement when they see the amazing things that God has done to bring entire nations to faith and to inspire missionaries, martyrs, and ministers through their humble lives. We thank God that, the, that their faith was proclaimed in all the world. If I had a wish, it would be that Piper would rewrite books 8 and 9. This could have been a much stronger book, a go-to classic for biographies for everyone, for young children, for adults, for the mature Christian, for the um, 
young Christian, if not for the fatal flaws in the last two books, less is more. 21 is better than 27. But don't let that stop you from getting and reading and profiting from this book. After all, you can always stop yourself at 21. This is a Reading and Readers review of 27 Servants of Sovereign Joy, Faithful, Flawed and Fruitful. 1,024 pages published by Crossway in September 2022, available for $34.99 in Amazon Kindle, $35.99 in Logos, and free in Desiring God. You can check out all the links in the show notes of this podcast or you can go to the website at www.readingandreaders.com That's www.readingandreaders.com The next episode will be a special episode where I do a long-term reflection. Of all the books that I have reviewed so far, which books have made a lasting impression in my life that I would like to share with all of you? Sometimes we read a book and we rave about it after we read it, but it is quickly forgotten when we read the next book. On the other hand, some books we read and then we don't think much of it at first, but later we could trace the unexpected impact and influence of that one book. And I have that one book in mind, and I want to tell you about it in the next episode. But better yet, why don't you join me in this reflection? It's the end of the year. Why not take a minute to reflect on which books, or, if I could, which book reviews that you have enjoyed and have made a lasting impact, a lasting influence in your life? Please drop me a note. You can contact me uh, from the, if you look at the website www.readingandreaders.com and you can find my contact details. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening. Have a merry, merry Christmas. Bye bye.